0: Long term, I am very bullish on Bitcoin. Who knows where it'll be in one year, two years, three years, but it's it's either going to zero or it's going to many millions in today's dollars. It's a binary outcome, so it's an asymmetric bet. And so at the end of the day, that's that's really all that matters. There's two potential outcomes long term and the bullish outcome is far more bullish than the bearish outcome. And so it's at least worth a certain percentage allocation.
1: This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Boy, oh boy, if you
2: like macro, you are going to love the episode in store for you. We speak to Joe Brown of Heresy Financial. He started Heresy to teach you how money works so that you can control your financial security, helping people acquire the education needed to prepare for the coming economic storms. His goal is to consistently create the best, most accessible financial content out there. Joe has courses, a YouTube channel, and his own bookshelf where he rates books that he has read from garbage to great. And he reads quite a lot of books, folks. With Joe, we explore a range of topics technical analysis, dollar cost averaging versus trading, Zoltar Posnar's new article, War in Interest Rates, globalization versus protectionism, inflationary and deflationary busts, and how the Fed may not bail us out this time. Joe has a pragmatic view of the world and he has an incredible gift with analogies to walk us through his point of view with ease. We truly enjoyed this discussion and we think you will too. By the way, there is an Easter egg hidden at the end of this episode from our pal Daz. Enjoy. CoinKite has introduced the new cold card Mark IV. This is a state-of-the-art signing device that has major optionality. You can use it for ultimate cold storage. In this setup, you can physically disable the wireless chip and ensure that it has no communication vectors with the outside world. You can air gap and be secure to your heart's delight. Alternatively, You can use near field communication and keep money in a software wallet on your phone. In a much more secure manner, in the setup, you sign with your cold card and your phone wallet has no access to the private keys. It merges the convenience of a software wallet on your phone with the security of a bespoke hardware device. In our opinion, the cold card Mark IV fucks hard. Speaking of fucking hard, the entire range of CoinKite products is in that category. The Blocklock Mini, the Blocklock Micro, the Open Dime,
1: And the Sats card. Cypherpunk stuff. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Joe, uh, we're enthused to have you on BCB today, first because... We really respect your hustle as well as your macro and investing outlook. We watch your videos frequently, but also because you bring like what we would say is a really helpful perspective to the show in that you have what I would describe as sort of a matter of fact, non-hyped outlook on Bitcoin, something we hear you occasionally comment on, but not necessarily something you focus on. So goal today is to have some unbiased, non-fluffy, dense macro and Bitcoin discussion appreciate you giving us the time. Thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It'll be a good time.
1: Joe, if
2: we can pry a little bit, we want to know a little bit about your background. Like how did you how did you become the macro analyst and sometimes talk about Bitcoin on YouTube? Like what was your path to get there?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um it started off from being broke. So, when my wife and I got married, I was making less than minimum wage. We had like 30 grand in debt and I knew nothing about money. And so uh, we realized we ha- kind of had to dig ourselves out of the hole that we had put ourselves in. And so I just start- started studying, you know, basic personal finance stuff. You know, discovered, you know, what a mutual fund was and an ETF and uh, you know things like that. Um, and really kind of fell in love with the, you know, that that whole that whole industry. I got my I weaseled my way into a job as a stockbroker because I was thinking, hey. If I want to know more about this, might as well uh, dive in and learn it from the inside out. And so I did a bunch of different jobs in the financial industry until it got to a point where things just started not making sense. Um, and I'm a very curious person by nature. So my goal is always to understand it as much as possible because my thesis was, if I can understand how money works, then I can understand you know, how to get more of it, basically. Uh, And so, uh, you know, as I dove deeper into it uh, from the inside, I realized, hey, this doesn't really line up. This doesn't make sense. And so I started studying, reading books uh, from, you know, kind of the outside and got introduced to things like Austrian economics and things like that. And then it just got to a point where I wasn't able to continue doing what I was doing with integrity and decided, you know what? I want to kind of spread the word and the message about how money really works and um, you know some of the dangers and the traditional financial advice and that kind of stuff, and so that's when I went out on my own. I did some consulting, blogging, podcasting. And my YouTube channel kind of took off first, and so I've um, been kind of just doing uh, doing that since.
1: One question I I have is what became most misaligned? So you're working as a stockbroker, and you you kind of just hinted at the fact that you started to feel some dissonance between maybe the products you were selling or the advice you were giving. And what you were uncovering on your own, what was most prominently yeah. exposed during that process?
0: Yeah. So uh, one of the w- w- one of the biggest examples is you go to any financial advisor and you ask them, you tell them, "Hey, I'm very conservative. I'm very scared about losing my money. I want to have the you know the most uh, the safest investment vehicle uh, out there." Um, what would you put me in? And every single one of them is going to tell you government treasuries. So the reason why they're going to tell you that is because their uh their boss and their company says, Hey, you have to, you have to say this. Well, why is that? Because they're licensed. Well, where do those licenses come from? FINRA and the SEC. So basically, from the government, you have every financial advisor in, in the country out there saying the safest thing you can do with your money is give it to the government. Well, so even if that's true, which it's not, uh, the uh there's at least a conflict of interest there. And so uh, and so that was the biggest uh Kind of thing that started to pop up initially was, hey, these things, forty-year bond bull market. uh, You know, you've got, uh, you've got basically return-free risk when investing in government treasuries because the best-case scenario is you lose a little to inflation. The worst-case scenario is you lose it all to a default. That's not safe. And so there's a difference between uh, risk and volatility, which uh, is a whole other story. But
1: so basically, you decided to exit the biggest circle jerk that has ever existed in human history
0: exactly what i just heard so
2: exactly. that so if you had to be so if you were completely relieved of all those obligations as a stockbroker and you were sitting here right now and you had a client who was like what is the safest thing to put my money in at the moment what would you what would you tell them man Obviously, we're getting this hot is, early i love yeah it. <laughs> yeah i've, I've got to know because i yeah. i honestly don't know it's such a f- fucking shitbox situation
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a good question. And it depends on what you mean by safe. And this is something you actually do have to clarify. It's not semantics because some people, when they say safe, they mean, I want this, the, li- the the lowest amount of volatility possible. Right. Um, I just want it to stay the exact same. And then you have to ask, okay, do you mean in real terms or in inflation adjusted terms? Because that's different as well. And so uh, then if they say, okay, in real terms, the smallest amount of fluctuation it's possible. So in terms of purchasing power, I want it to stay the same. Then you have to say, okay, well, we can't see the future, but we can see the past. And so you would then use something like the Lindy effect and say, okay, the the longer something has existed in any way, the higher the probability is that it continues to exist that way into the future. So when you look at something like gold, you would see, okay, the purchasing power of gold has remained relatively the same for at least three thousand years, and so you're not going to make money on gold. You're not going to lose money on gold. Your purchasing power will stay relatively the same as long as the last three thousand years have any indication of the next, you know, couple decades, couple hundred years, couple thousand years. Um, there's no guarantee though, um, and so that's the kind of the the uh, most statistically likely thing to put your money in to experience low volatility long term uh, with your purchasing power. Now, the other thing somebody might say when you ask them, okay, if they say I want the safest thing possible, they might say the lowest probability of losing money. And then when you dive down into that, what they're really saying is, I understand that things can be volatile when I go to take out my money and need to use it. I want to make sure I'm not needing to use it when everything is down. And so then you get to the the, uh, reality of investing, which is like, hey, if you can eliminate downsides, you don't necessarily have to give up the upsides. So you can invest in stocks and buy puts, you're eliminating the downside, which means you're eliminating the volatility of the drawdowns, but you're still exposing yourself to the upside. And so a lot of times people don't want a lack of volatility. They just want to maximize their total long-term wealth, which means I want to have more at the end when I need it and not less at the end when I need it.
2: Mm. So I think one of the coolest things that you just, Kind of brought to the surface there is that there's very different ways to look at safety. Volatility may not mean something is not a, a safe bet. It might just mean that like you need to have a longer time frame on the bet that you're putting on. And Bitcoin's a perfect example of that. That might be not a good example of something someone should buy in, the, in a for a year long timeframe, because the shit could get real sideways within a year. But tell me if you agree, it may be a good investment for maybe the next 10, 15 years. That might be a timeframe that you're probably looking at a fairly safe investment. What's your opinion on Bitcoin in, say, the 10 to 20 year range investment?
0: Yeah, as far okay, as safety. So there, yeah, yeah. So there's a couple different parts to that uh, question that I'll break down. The first one is I'm going to go even further, one step further than what you said and say that many times uh, a lack of volatility um, is just uh, just covering up real risk. And so um, going back to the example of gold for decades, the price of gold was $35 an ounce. It was the the gold standard, if you will, of a lack of volatility. It did not move. The problem is dollars were redeemable for gold and there were many more dollars issued than there was enough gold to be redeemed. And so in 1970 and 71, when the rest of the world realized this and they all started to trade in their dollars that said by law they were redeemable for gold, they started to do that. There wasn't enough gold to do so. And when that finally broke, meaning they just, America ran out of gold or was very close to it, that meant that the price then immediately skyrocketed upwards to reflect the supply of dollars out there. And so if the price of gold would have been free floating that entire time for all those decades, number one, it would have been a lot more volatile. And number two, it would have reacted slowly upwards over the long term. And so the lack of volatility was actually suppressing the real risk that was there. And if that volatility would not have been suppressed, then the rest of the world would have caught on a lot sooner and would have slowly started redeeming their gold and you wouldn't have had things break all at once. So many times a lack of volatility is just suppression and covering up the real risk that is there that will eventually mm-hmm. be exposed. And so when you go to the other end of the extreme of that to something like Bitcoin, that's one of the most volatile uh, mainstream assets to have you know ever existed what you're seeing is really a true uh, expression of the market's uh, perception of its value, and so you're 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 able to see the risk that's there because of the volatility, and you're able to see the the value that the market is placing on it instead of having that uh, volatility squashed and be covered up, and then have the risk of that e- exploding all at once. And so uh, that's that's the relationship that volatility has uh, has with risk. Uh, now, that doesn't mean, like you said, that you can't lose money on it, obviously, because you go, you know, one year to the next, it's down, you know, 30 percent, 80 percent, depending on the year. Uh, and then, you know, does the exact opposite as well. Um, Long term, I am very bullish on Bitcoin. Who knows where it'll be in one year, two years, three years, but it's 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 either going to zero or it's going to many millions in today's dollars. Yeah, It's a yeah, binary yeah. outcome. So it's an asymmetric bet. And so at the end of the day, that's, that's really all that matters. There's two potential outcomes long term. And the bullish outcome is far more bullish than the bearish outcome. And so it's at least worth a certain percentage allocation.
1: Yeah. And this is why a lot of what you said it, it enumerates why education and position size matter, especially for someone that's just getting into it. Like if you're overexposed without good understanding, this thing is not going to treat you well. There's absolutely no way you will stay on this Mustang. Um, so yeah, you got it. No matter how enthused and bullish you get, you can't go tell your grandmother to throw 80% of her net worth in this thing if she has no fucking clue what it is. And um, at least... The way we see it, our thesis is that this thing is going to stay extremely volatile for a long, long time. I mean, there might be a day in the future, decades from now, where things have leveled off and this is a reserve asset or something like that. But for the time being, um, the market is uncertain about it, and that's very clear. And um, it's going to whipsaw in both directions, I think, in violent ways, both to the upside and the downside. Yeah. Hey,
2: um, real quick, you had a recent video with Gareth Soloway before we get off mm-hmm. the topic of Bitcoin right off the bat. He's a technical analyst and he said he foresees Bitcoin potentially reaching 12K on the downside in this cycle. What are your views on that? And then also, I'm really curious about your views about technical analysis because, mm-hmm. I mean, people run the gamut of believing that, you know, that's the only thing they trade on if they trade at all. And then there's the other side, which is people believe it's, you know, astrology for men type thing. <laughs> what is your uh, what's your position on the low? I mean, where you think the low side for Bitcoin is in this cycle, and then on tech, technical analysis
0: in general. Sure, I'm actually going to answer those questions in reverse order. So, uh, on technical analysis first, um, if you are going to trade, there is nothing else to trade on other than the charts. So that's right. that's that's the first thing is that you cannot trade on anything other than just random buys and sells unless you're looking at the charts because the other thing that you're doing then is looking at the fundamentals which means that you're investing. I mean the fundamentals do not change second to second, hour to hour, yeah. day to day, month to month at you know at, at most they change quarter to quarter and so if you are trading, you are looking at the charts. Um, well, wait.
1: There is one other way you can be in Congress
0: and in insider trade as well. That's the third. <laughs> yeah, got to get That's to Congress. True. Reach the promised That's land. True. That's true. I I, uh, I take that back. There is that third <laughs> way you can uh, you can do legal insider trading. Yeah. So uh, so with your uh, when you're looking at a chart, then uh, really the the main thing that you have to understand about technical analysis is that uh, it is a visual representation of Pattern emergence from group behavior. That's it. And so when groups get together and all have their own opinions about whether something is fair value, undervalued or overvalued, and then everybody starts buying and selling those things. And things are constantly changing about, okay, well, that might be undervalued, but I think something else is undervalued more. Or right now, you know, the Fed decision just changed. And so now that makes everything look a little bit more overvalued than it was before. All of this consensus, the aggregate of all the buying and selling causes prices to happen. And then when you put that on a chart, all you're doing is seeing what that group behavior was. It's a visual representation of that. And patterns do emerge out of that because group behavior has patterns. There are somewhat predictable outcomes from group behavior when uh, when when certain inputs arrive. And so when you see a chart and you see support and resistance, for instance, um, that's basically just a price at which the stock usually doesn't fall under or usually doesn't go over. And every time it gets near there, it then goes away. So th- there could there are always underlying reasons for those patterns emerging, but that doesn't negate the fact that those patterns have emerged. And so uh, it, this the, these types of patterns show up in all sorts of things other than just um, you know uh, you know asset prices. For instance, one of, a very common technical indicator is the uh, Fibonacci sequence, which we see in uh, you know all over nature. Uh, And so you can use that. And when you put that, when you overlay the Fibonacci sequence on charts, it almost always automatically lines up with the natural support and resistance lines that were already there. So uh it's it's uh it's not astrology and voodoo, it's just pattern recognition, and it's definitely not uh, foolproof. Because if it was, it would be it can't be, because if anytime something becomes foolproof, it kills itself. Because if I know based on a pattern that this is gonna be, it's worth 90 today and it's worth 100, it's gonna be worth 100 tomorrow. Well, then I'm gonna buy it today at 90. I'm gonna buy it as much as I can at 90 because I know it's guaranteed to be worth 100. But by nature of all that buying, it'll push it up to 100. And then that pattern will be gone. And so anytime something becomes really well known and the the mass, the more money than not acts on it, it kind of undoes that effect from happening. So bringing this back to Bitcoin, an example of that is the stock to flow model that became very popular. Once you have three (laughs) cycles and you say, okay, well, that means Bitcoin's going to 200,000. Well, as soon as that, you know, kind of became mainstream, it's like, well, now that pattern stops working. Like as soon as you notice it, it's like, okay. Yeah. Every time, every time the bears lose their first game, uh, the Republicans win, you know, this primary or whatever it is, they're uncorrelated, even though it's happened every single time for the last 20 years, that, that that doesn't mean that you can bet on that. And that's a sure thing now. So getting back to the target for Bitcoin to 12,000 by Gareth Solway, the charts would suggest that that's higher, uh, th- there's a higher likelihood of that than not Uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you look at the things that it's correlated with, like the, like the NASDAQ, it has had relative weakness during this last bull run. So for the last month, stocks have gone up more than Bitcoin has. And that usually isn't true. Usually it's, you know, you would have expected Bitcoin to go up more than stocks, but it hasn't. So relative to stocks, it's had weakness. And when you see weakness on a bull run, that's happened after a uh, bear crash, you expect more weakness after that. Technically speaking, the nineteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars support uh, line is very weak. There's not a whole lot of price action there, and so if it does break that, you would anticipate to fill the gap below that down to about the twelve thousand dollars level, which there is a lot of support at, relatively uh, speaking, compared to like the nineteen twenty level. And so, technically speaking, yes, that's a that's a higher likelihood move in my opinion uh whether you want to trade on that or not is is up to you because ultimately the downside right now is 24,000 and the upside is, you know, a million. So whether you right. want to trade on that or not is is up to you.
1: Um we had a guy named Jeff Ross on, don't know if you know who he is, but he was talking about with TA, he's a hedge fund manager. He was saying he especially with Bitcoin or other assets too, I think he was referring to when when it's a bull market he basically only pays attention to bull signals and when it's a bear market he pretty much only pays attention to bear signals like he kind of that's how that that's how he takes one miss out of the way with TA do you view it that way at all does that make any sense to you resonate
0: Sure. Yes. The problem though, is identifying the the switch because by the time it becomes very clear you're in a bull market versus a bear market, a lot of the move has already happened. So for instance, right now in the stock market, um, there's a big debate whether or not we've started a new bull market right now, or whether this is a bear market rally. And uh, so Michael Burry is an example of somebody who said, you know, Hey, yeah, he sold many everything many times. Yeah, he sold everything. And a lot of times in stock market crashes, you have 20%, uh, uh, 20 to 25% uh, bull, uh, uh, bear market rallies. So just because we're up 20%, 25% from the low doesn't mean that we don't have a bigger leg down, uh, down to go from here.
2: As an aside, I was just reading an article about him and he owns the the only stock he's sitting on right now is a prison stock. It's like a private prison company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Yeah. <laughs> Michael Burry is betting hard on prisons and savage. nothing else. That's absolutely uh, savage.
1: It's a bold move. This is where and we are, you know, dunces compared to someone like yourself, but paying close attention to broader macro headwinds is absolutely vital. You got Mm-hmm. nation bitcoiners on on Twitter thinking this thing's going to eighty thousand overnight. It's like not if liquidity's not flush back in the system. it's not this thing yeah. is highly coupled to risk on assets. We're in a dicey environment with something that as you as you just mentioned, could very likely very likely just be a relief rally and um yeah, that's why you gotta have a long term outlook and be careful because uh. This thing is this thing is now a nascent macro asset that uh, very much moves in the same direction as sentiment and liquidity yeah. in the broader market.
2: And I think it's important to you know speak to the l- people that are listening and say, generally speaking, most people are not good traders at all. Like we kind of recommend DCA for the average plebe, and I I would assume uh, Joe you would agree with that. Like most people shouldn't be trying to trade this stuff, at least not with a significant portion of their portfolio like if you want to play the trading game five ten percent maybe at most like just don't get yourself killed even if you think you read a book on technical analysis and you're an expert now this stuff is not it's all probability based it's it's certainly not something you should bet everything on
0: well that brings up a really good point about uh, you know any given strategy whether it's you know Jeff Ross or anybody else when when you have studied enough of the most successful traders and investors throughout history, you you start to recognize that they all actually have one thing in common. their strategies might be very different. they're all successful and the one common thread between every single one of them is do not lose money. Do not risk large drawdowns. Never put yourself at risk of a catastrophe of blowing up, of losing everything. Whether you're talking about Warren Buffett, you know, long-term investor or short-term traders, whatever it is, the risk management piece is always the number one and number two and number three and number four rule across the board. And so uh, whether the strategy is to uh, uh, is to trade Bitcoin, to dollar cost average, to buy into it, whatever you're investing in, that's going to be the number one thing to pay attention to because the strategy is not as important as uh, managing the downside risks associated with that strategy. Um, And then the question about uh, dollar cost averaging, um, I'm a huge fan of dollar cost averaging, especially to volatile assets. And so Bitcoin fits this incredibly well. And uh, many, many of these services, like I use Swan Bitcoin, they allow you to even do it daily. And so when you have these, these, you know, sometimes they only last for a couple of days where Bitcoin goes upward, down. A large amount, you're able to capitalize on that. Whether, you know, compared to something like stocks, the traditional stock portfolio, you'll dollar cost average once a month or twice a month when your paycheck hits or something like that. That doesn't really matter because they're not that volatile. But something like Bitcoin is like, yeah, I bought a little bit on that dip because I had 10 bucks going in automatically. Yeah. Right on.
2: Um, so, watching some of your YouTube videos recently, um, stumbled into the Zoltan. Uh, Posnar, I believe that's the way you say his name, his piece. And I was totally enamored by your YouTube video and I had to read this piece. So his basic thesis is that this inflation is not generally driven by the money that was printed in 2020, like so many people suppose, and makes a lot of sense on paper. When When you understand that they printed say $4 trillion in a single year, it would make sense that that is the primary driver of this inflation. His view is that this is much more driven by the Economic forces that are changing in this sort of economic war between China and Russia, whereas the U.S. the rich people in the U.S. who have been benefiting from QE for the last, say, ten years after the Great Financial Crisis have been buying luxury goods from Europe that have been built on cheap gas from from Russia, and then all of the poorer people or middle class people in the U.S. have been benefiting from all the cheap Chinese goods that have existed and are now, you know, because of politics because of, uh, tariffs and all these other things and the, and China probably playing games with, with us because we're playing games with them is how much of this do you agree with as far as like, is this inflation primarily caused by the massive amount of money printing we did to bail ourselves out of some stupid decisions we made in 2020 versus the economic warfare that seems very likely to be going on as well. I'm, I'm really just reaching for like, how much of this do you (laughs) what do you subscribe to between these two views yeah how do
0: you view this all right i'm going to answer this first with a with an analogy if i get into a car accident and i rear-end the car in front of me did i rear-end that car because i didn't press the brakes or because i was going 60 miles an hour already well it's like if i wasn't going 60 miles an hour already then i wouldn't have even had to press the brakes and i wouldn't have hit the car But I was going 60 miles an hour and then I also didn't hit the brakes. So then I hit the car in front of me. So it's like a lot of these things are a lot more interconnected and have a lot more momentum behind them than than we tend to look at. So 40 percent expansion of the total money supply takes a long time for it to work its way. All throughout the economy, from hitting the government's checking account to getting paid out to everybody, whether that's to corporations or organizations or, you know, whatever it is, to uh, hitting asset prices, to uh, then getting sold off and hitting weight, the prices of goods and services and then filtering through to wages to make up for the the, the new inflation rate. And then you have to even take a step back further from there and say, okay, well, why were we in this position where we had so many cheap goods coming from other places? Okay, well, it's because China's labor has been very cheap. But why would labor eight hours a day of factory work be inherently worth less just because it's positioned in a different geographic location? Because logic would tell you that It should be the same value, whether it's coming from somebody in China or coming from somebody in America. And so a lot of this goes back decades from this push towards globalization that has been on the backs of easy money and fiat Mm -hmm. currency everywhere that has allowed this massive expansion of debt that it it has fueled seemingly cheap stuff to be built around the world that is now we're starting to see the consequences of this all pop up at once. And when ice melts, it goes from zero degrees to 10 degrees to 20 degrees to 30 degrees. And it's still ice that entire time. It's still a solid. It's still frozen. But the moment it switches from 32 to 33 degrees, bam, it's liquid. It wasn't that one degree it was the cumulative yeah. effect of every single degree that it warmed up from it's the bottom up to melting. And so there's, there are a lot of forces at work from many decades of, a, of abusing the, the dollar and fiat currency and debt growth that we're now starting to see everything unfold all at once. We can't point at something that happened today as the cause it's, it's uh, it's been building up for a while. I,
1: so first of all, Josh and I are both, you know, we're, we're reading multiple articles a week and texting each other. Josh went like full blown code red on this article. He read it first. (laughs) And basically we, we rarely do this. Like you can't cry wolf every week, but he basically was like, drop everything, drop everything and read this. I was like, all right. So I basically dropped everything and I read it and I was like, wow, this is regardless of whether this is accurate or not this is a very interesting outlook and i think it pushes into the nuance that a lot of people need to push in because it's very easy to look at a chart of central bank balance sheets and just say it's all a money supply issue and basically right. you know as we've already you know explored this piece really goes to the to the other side and says there is a shift in the supply curve it's significant you look at a tightening in labor goods energy and he lays out all the reasons why this is the case right right and Something we say on this show, we've said numerous times, but this piece really kind of brings back to light for me is that if you zoom out, globalization is an inherently deflationary force. We are entering a period of what you could characterize as deglobalization. Right, frictions are building. How is this not going to be inherently inflationary? Right, as the supply is the supply shifts. So. I don't know. This was a Pucker article for me. Like I was like, wow, this could look quite different. The Fed's predicament could be even more complex than I initially presumed. Any thoughts on that, guys? And how did you, f- how did you find this piece? What made you decide to do a video on it?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, a big part of what I do is just, uh, kind of like what you said, just reading stuff all the time. And, uh, I stumbled across it. He's always putting out, uh, these, uh, his, his reports here. And so every time one is fairly significant, it usually, you know, comes across my radar. Um, but yeah, so this is, uh, we're entering into a, like, it seems like we are entering into a time period that is starting to undo a lot of the, uh, globalization that we've, that we've seen, but I, it, it's important to uh, talk about the nuance. Globalization itself isn't inherently good or bad. the The problem with it comes from comes from coercion, comes from uh, government uh, overstep and forcing things to happen, which it does, basically through inflationary financing, and it's done that for you know decades. And so if for whatever reason, there's somebody else in another country that wants to do something and I can get it cheaper from them than I can from anywhere else. They specialize in that and they're offering it for a price. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But what starts to happen is because of the abuse of the fiat currency system in every country, um, having the ability to manipulate the value of their currency in order to affect exports and imports and then issue debt in their own currency versus borrowing from other currencies. You have these massive, and very they last for a very long time, these massive dislocations in how wealth is allocated globally. And so you have these artificially low prices emerge in, uh, in certain places that eventually do have to unwind because they're built artificially. Yeah. And so we're starting to see a lot of that right now. But the problem is, during that time, you eliminate redundancies and you eliminate some of the systems that should that would have been in place if everything was just uh, free floating and left up to free market participants. And so a lot of the a lot of the things that we're seeing right now, where certain countries don't have enough production of one thing or another, and they can't get it because. Um, because of different uh, relationships changing um, and then they have massive inflation in those goods. Uh, they A lot of them wouldn't have happened um, if they would have kept the redundancies, like for instance, manufacturing leaving the United States uh, so heavily over the last few decades.
2: It also, it strikes me as logical also that places like China for the last, like say till the seventies, when we started having some interoperability with them. And then and, you know, heavier in the '80s, and then in the '90s and 2000s, it really took off. They were such a poor country with resource, well, not with resources, just in general, that we were able to arbitrage the manufacturing over there and pay people peanuts because they would work for peanuts. Whereas here, people aren't going to work for less than like what they consider a reasonable wage, and we see that all over the place. You know, you see restaurants that don't have waiting staff because nobody's willing to work for the price they're willing to pay. What I'm getting at though is we kind of took advantage of the situation with low priced countries having to manufacture everything. And then they gained wealth and they were like, wait a second, we're not going to work for peanuts anymore. We've we figured out, you know, the fact that we're valuable and we can hold this over other countries' heads that we're not gonna we're not gonna get paid peanuts anymore. We're not, so now we're gonna have to look and you know through the world and say, all right, who's willing to work for peanuts anymore? Not as many people. Um that seems like the more I mean I, I guess it's more blue collar way to kind of view this is People aren't working for peanuts in China anymore like they used to. Who's going to work for peanuts? They're going to have to go to Africa. I don't know. But it, people are going to start raising up and saying, we're just not working for nothing anymore and you're going to have to pay us a fair wage.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've also booted a lot of labor out domestically too. That's something else this article hints at. Like, yeah. Wages are going up in the US because a lot of immigrants are no longer here that were working for wages that... People that are still here aren't willing to work for. You know that that's an inflationary force.
2: What is interesting, though, Joe, and I'm curious your your perspective on this. He hints at pretty forcefully in this article that he thinks that Jerome Powell is going to start really, really cinching rates up. Like this isn't a joke. Like he really understands, and I think he must. Jerome Powell doesn't strike me as a fool. He understands that if they lose the currency, the that's everything to the United States. The United States has a hollowed out you know, industrial base. The only thing we really have is a currency that is the reserve currency of the world. We cannot afford to lose that. And he's going to, you know, he's going to vulker this thing if, if as much as he, as much as he can before he completely just bottoms this thing out. I don't know how this is going to go, but what Zoltan laid out was, a is an L shaped, <laughs> an L shape mm-hmm. for this economy, which is very, very downward move and then leveling off and stagnating for a long period of time. Well, did you, uh, did you resonate with that? Or do you think that he might actually pull back when, uh, when that down move happens?
0: Yeah, this is one of the thing one of the opinions that I hold that is kind of, uh, uh, unpopular. Um, I think because so many people are, they, they want that easy money to come back because they felt rich. Um, but uh, I think we're in for a lot more deflation, a lot more uh, asset prices falling, a lot more raising of interest rates, and a lot longer of a period of time before we see any sort of a turnaround. The reason why is because you know everybody always says, hey, the Fed always bails everything out. The Fed put for you know over 20 years, every time things get a little dicey, the Fed comes in and makes things easier. What's the difference? Is this time different? Inflation. Yes. Look at the CPI. Way (laughs) different. It has not been this high for decades. And last time it was this high, it was measured differently. And so if we measured it the same, we'd be at 18, 19% right now if we measured it the same way that we measured it in the 70s. And so inflation has not been this high for a very, very long time, um, especially during the last 20 years when the Federal Reserve was uh, bailing things out. And so- For the last 20 years, they've been wrong about this. I want to be clear. I'm being descriptive, not prescriptive. They've looked at the economy and said, hey, prices are not going up. So we need to make conditions easier to push prices up. And then every time there was some big scare that had the ability to push prices down tremendously, they said, we need to come in and put a stop to that. And they were effective at that. But the problem is every time you do that, you, uh, you bail out the rot, so the rot builds up and it doesn't have the ability to get cleared out and then it builds up more and more and the problem is worse next time and we've seen that since, you know, the dot com bubble burst. And so this last time they came in and if they wanted to stop prices from falling, they were going to have to do it bigger than they did the time before. And so not only did they lower interest rates which they've done for 20 years, and not only did they uh Uh, start quantitative easing, which they had been doing for, you know, 12 years. And not only did they uh, start buying mortgage-backed securities, which they had been doing for 12 years, but they also started buying uh, corporate debt through special purpose vehicles at the treasury. They did basically direct debt monetization to finance a government bailout of stimulus checks to people, of stimulus checks to organizations to companies and uh, financed uh, a massive decrease in expenses for homeowners through forbearance that the government paid to mortgage holders. So there were uh, just big explosion uh, compared to before of what they had done, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to stop prices from falling. And it just so happened that that overdid it. And so now we have prices going up severely for the first time in decades, and they're the ones in control of the money. That's their job is price stability. And so they're looking at this and they're saying, hey, if we bail things out again too fast, the inflation stays here and potentially gets worse. And we might have a hyperinflationary currency collapse on our hands, which means the United States is done with. It's over. There's no power left if the dollar stops being used. So they know at the end of the day, they have to stop that from happening. They're just going slow right now because they don't want to accidentally overdo it again in the other way and cause a deflationary death spiral which could cause the government to default in that case, they would bail out the government, probably nobody else, but they' just they're trying not to overdo it, and I think they will overdo it, but it'll take longer than people think.
1: OK, this next question is going to be a big one. Uh, there's a lot to fill in, but I'm looking for you to kind of explore what really goes down on both sides of the tightrope, right? So as you've explored and others have explored, we're on this you know, tightrope between massive inflation and massive deflation and deleveraging, okay? Two-part question. The first one is, there's a lot of Bitcoiners, sound money advocates, Austrian economists, economists all over the map that have said th- thus far, in some part, been wrong, saying rates can't go up. The, look at the debt loads. Look at the look at the debt over GDP, especially from on the public sector. There's no way rates can go up to X or Y because they'll default and they can't afford their debt and their interest payments and all this thing. So I want you to kind of take the other side of that of why they may, may be able to accomplish that. That's part one. And then part two is, what does this hyperinflationary event for the US dollar look like? Because some... When something hyperinflates, it moves into something else, right? And this is the King Kong of fiat world reserve currencies. Like, how does this manifest? How dramatic could it get? And what would capital flow into in that environment? Go.
0: Okay. <laughs> all right. So all, I'll answer this in three parts. <laughs>
2: no big deal. It's easy questions NGT. for you.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, this is good. All right. So three parts. The first part is uh, debt loads versus interest rates. The next part is uh, what a deflationary crash would probably look like. And then the next part is what a hyperinflationary crash would probably look like. So uh, I said before, what's different this time? Inflation. The other thing that's different this time is debt loads. When you look at um, uh, household debt, corporate debt, government debt, all time highs, when you look at um, the federal government's debt compared to GDP, it's at all time highs. Uh, economists for years have looked at countries all over the world throughout the last couple hundred years and said, anytime a country gets past you know uh, 60% debt to GDP, they're in trouble. 90% GDP, you can't come back from 120% GDP, you're almost on the verge of collapse. Well, last year, we hit like 130% debt to GDP. We're down more now. And the reason for that is because the, the debt it happens instantly as soon as they borrow and they borrowed all that money all at once in 2020. And then they spent that money. And then over the next year, year, two years, that money works its way throughout the economy, bids up prices. And that means GDP goes up. And so the debt goes up, that makes the debt to GDP ratio look really bad. Then the GDP goes up as the, you know, debt stays the same. And so the ratio looks better. So we'll we'll have to see when we look back on this in history, what the, you know, the average debt to GDP ratio ends up being for this whole two, three year period. Um, However, it's very high. (laughs) It's regardless of whether you want to say 130, 120, 110, whatever it ends up being on average, it's very, very high. The reason that's a problem is because of servicing the debt. And this is where we get into, uh, you know, when we look at the the hyperinflationary outcome at the end of this, this is where we get to the problems with the debt-based monetary system is that at a certain point you have diminishing returns because if they take out a bunch of debt, like I just showed they spend that money that pushes GDP higher because prices go higher. Well, that the prices go higher. That means they get more tax revenue from sales and wages and all of that. And so then they're able to service the cost of that debt. But at a certain point you're able to only able to take on more debt as much as you can afford it. So for 40 years, the debt costs have been going down because, uh, Interest rates have been going down. And I'm talking about on an absolute term, uh, relative to their income, it has gotten easier for the government to pay the interest rate on its debt, even though the debt amount has exploded just because interest rates have gotten so low. If right. if you were going from 20% interest rates on your credit card and you can only have a $10,000 balance because of that, now suddenly you have a 0% interest rate on your credit cards, you might be able to have a $100,000 balance that you can afford the minimum payments on. So that's what the government has done. It's loaded up on debt as interest rates have gone down, but interest rates can't go down much more from here until zero, they really can't go negative, at least for a long period of time. And so you have this uh, this floor under which interest rates can go. And so they really can only go up from here. And the federal government is already paying a lot in interest rates. So how high can interest rates go? Well, default is not inevitable, uh, or its I should say it's not imminent. Um, if interest rates uh, hit like 6% and the government had to keep on rolling overall its new debt to a 6% interest rate, which is still a long way away from where we're at right now, um, it would probably take four years-ish at the current spending rate before the government would be at like serious risk of we need to do something because we can't afford our interest payments. And so uh, the Federal Reserve can continue to raise interest rates a lot from here without putting the government at risk of defaulting. Further than that, market expectations come into play here. And this is where uh, I, I've i uh, probably changed my opinion on. I I was saying for a while that yield curve control would happen sooner than later. But when the market expects the Fed to come in and bail the system out, they expect the Fed to lower interest rates in the future. So if the Fed jacks the Fed funds rate up to 6% tomorrow, the 30-year and the 20-year and the 10-year are not going to 6%. And they're definitely not going above it. So we'll just have a, a steeply inverted yield curve because the market would expect interest rates to go down in between then and now. Right. Meaning that okay. they're you're not going to take on uh you're, you're not that that the, the, the 2010 is not going to reach above you're going to stay inverted, and so the government won't have to roll over into six percent they'll have to roll over into whatever the market is setting, mm. the, the twos the tens and the twenties at, and so at some point let's say the raise rates to six percent and keep on raising rates, and they keep on saying, we're not going to lower rates, at some point, the market will realize, oh, this is sticking around. Then interest rates would go up from there. And then the government would have to have to roll over into that. But it's possible that takes a long time, that the banking system still offers lower than real interest rates to the government in anticipation of future rates going down. So that's always that a possibility. Is,
2: that's such an important point you just made. And something... I mean, you think about this stuff on a surface level quite a bit, at least I think I do. I mean, we recently read, Dan and I both read this bond book, which I think was really good at kind of enumerating a lot of the nuance that we totally missed before. But still, like we're very much beginners in all this. And the point you just made, like, why wouldn't they just decide we're just going to do the 30 year bond for the most part, like issue those because people are paying much lower rates. Like, is there any impedance for them to do that? Is there any reason they wouldn't just be issuing the longer term, say, 10 20 30 year bonds in lieu of those say 3 year ones that would be at say 6% that makes total sense to me as long as there's a market for it they're going to keep doing it and when the market turns off for those bonds at that price they'll inevitably have to i mean the market itself will force function those r- interest rates to the amount that people will willingly pay unless the fed does yield curve control which would be buying those longer dated bonds interesting thesis on that it's something i haven't heard anyone say before
1: wait so let me let me this is basically what you're saying. Tom, correct me if I'm wrong. You're you're saying Joe that if there is a momentary rate hike, let's say to 6%, right? Seems kind of crazy, but let's say that comes to pass. If it's a momentary thing, you've got a number of factors going, game of cat and mouse between say the bond market and the Fed and, and an expectation that those will eventually come down. But also just it is a momentary hike and debt doesn't roll over every night, right? It's on a time frame, so not all their debt is coming due next month. So in that environment, debt servicing costs could be relatively unaffected. The scenario where it could get super fucked up for them and a lot of debt could get monetized is if inflation is more persistent than anticipated and that rates need to stay perpetually high. And that's Mm -hmm. what the bond market's also you know, eventually catching up to. Did I just kind of articulate your point accurately or did I miss something there?
0: Yes. No, you did. And and the funny thing about this is, let's say they do uh, jack interest rates up and then the market believes that interest rates are going to come back down in the future. So the longer dated bonds don't don't get the higher interest rate. We have a steeply inverted yield curve in that situation, then what would what would end up happening is the to the extent that any interest rates do move up with the with the Fed raising interest rates. Um, You would have a that's a disinflationary or a deflationary force on the economy. And so even if inflation stays persistent, at some point, Hmm. those higher interest rates have a uh, do have a combating effect on inflation, which brings inflation down, which would then mean the market is right about rates coming down because you don't Hmm. need rates super high uh, to combat inflation once inflation goes away. And so to some extent, you, you don't even have to look for, especially for the longer data bonds, you don't need them to be pricing in a future bailout. You just need them to be pricing in a drop in inflation, which higher current interest rates would push inflation down. Hmm, right. Okay. Yeah. And then, And I mean, then you think about the scenario
1: though, this is where we really get the rock in a hard place, tight, tight rope situation. As you think about debt loads, but also just exorbitant entitlement obligations. You think about an economy that significantly deleverages and stays low for a while and think about how expensive all the guarantees are currently. It's a shit show. I mean, it's a debt monetization Mm -hmm. shit show if this thing... Man, both sides are just such a catastrophe. It's like hard to wrap your head around two similar but opposite
0: scenarios. I don't know if you're... Let's play through it. Let's play through it because um, ultimately what I've been describing is a situation in which it takes a lot longer for things to play out than a lot of people expect. Mm. Um, But the reality is you still do have rock in the hard place on each side. Really, the only way through the thread, the needle is a giant increase in productive output so that we can deleverage without experiencing the pain of that deleveraging
2: all we need is nuclear fusion folks that's it exactly
0: nuclear <laughs> fusion artificial intelligence and yeah. uh, and and a robot army we have a massive leap forward in uh productive output and yep. and our We have Elon Musk anymore. and we've that going for us True yeah true oh, so so Jesus. other than threading the needle there we have uh we have deflation on one side and inflation on the other and so we raise rates to fight inflation. Fed sells assets to fight inflation. Um, you have a deflationary event take place—a crash on one side where prices, assets, goods and services, wages all start to all start to come down. You have bankruptcies. You have uh, unemployment. You have a a Great Depression type of event take place. That is a deleveraging event because it deleverages the the economy. Um, All of the rot gets gets wiped out and uh, you basically, you know, start over from scratch. On the other side, you've got the inflationary outcome, which is where they don't fight inflation enough. Inflation takes root. You get a wage price spiral that keeps on going. The combating forces against inflation never get strong enough to offset it money supply keeps on growing because every time a problem happens where there's not enough money to do something, they just print money in order to, uh, to finance that. Um, then the value of the currency slowly degrades and then quickly degrades. And then it takes, you know, instead of taking $600,000 to buy a house, it takes $6 million to buy a house. Um, instead of it taking $40,000 to buy a car, it takes $400,000 to buy a car. Um, so those kind of spirals can set in very quickly. Uh, the, uh, the, the, reality, the fact is though that to have the inflationary outcome, you have to have a sustained increase in the money supply. Otherwise incomes cannot continually go up, which means that you, you don't have uh, purchasing power or uh, spending power continuing to support the price increases. Because yeah. if the money supply growth stops, then the price increases stop because there's not enough new money to continue to be divided up among all the stuff to keep on pushing prices higher. Once prices stop going up, the natural thing is that the prices start to go down because I'm not gonna buy a stock if it's not gonna go up, so I'm gonna sell it, which is gonna push the price down. Once asset prices start to fall, now we have trouble because asset prices are the foundation underneath uh, debt valuations and company valuations and wages and income and filtering down to uh, you know everybody who has jobs. And so naturally you have an unwind that would lead to deflation. Deflation is the natural force throughout all of human history. Um, so the only way we get the inflationary outcome is if we have a growth in the money supply which could happen if the Fed, starts up QE again to finance increased government spending. Right now, we don't have an increase in government spending. Money supply growth has been flat this entire year. Um, The Inflation Reduction Act is going to have a potentially net neutral effect on money supply because while they are spending more money, they're also trying to tax a lot more money as well. Um, And so uh, it'll be painful and destructive to wealth which uh, is deflationary. And so right now I see a lot of deflationary forces.
2: That is, uh, that is some heavy stuff, Joe. Um, so I, I want to make this applicable for everyone listening because people are looking at this whipsawing like deflationary uh, bust, inflationary explosion. Um, how in the world are we going to survive all of this? Because it sounds pretty intimidating on in either direction we could swing. And the probability of the Fed being able to uh, loop us through that tiny little pinhole that is required for this to not come to pass seems <laughs> seems Unlikely. like it's getting smaller every day. So if you have any what what do you have for recommendations as far as how people can protect themselves in either one of these scenarios? because let's be honest, none of us have any idea which this thing is going to actually play out, nor do we have any idea what the time frame is. We're just kind of at the the will of the the markets and the clowns that run the Fed and, you know, the ECB and, and China and all the other powers that be. How are we going to, I mean, besides like filling our uh, safes full of gold bullets and guns, like what are we, uh,
0: what's your plan? How do we fly through the eye of the needle, Joe? Tell us. <laughs> Well, the nice thing is that there is no such thing as the economy. Uh, In reality, there's just a bunch of individuals uh, that we uh, aggregate together and we call it the economy. So when I say that there's no way through a deleveraging without experiencing pain, unless you increase your productive output enough to offset the pain, uh, that applies to individuals as well. And so the number one thing that especially recently I've been telling people is the most important thing you can do is increase your income. Whether that's learning a new skill, whether that's a side hustle, whether that's uh, getting a raise, getting a new job, uh, starting a business, whatever it is, um, money is losing its purchasing power compared to the stuff that people need. And so increase your income enough to to offset that, de-risk yourself by deleveraging, paying off debt. And the easiest way to do that is to drastically increase your income. So I would set that as my number one priority. Uh, Number two, the... uh, whether we have deflation or inflation roads are starting to point to a, uh, an increased amount of control over the monetary system, because the reason we have the boom bust cycle is because we have a debt based monetary system. And uh, so everything goes back to debt. It's all built on debt. And so whether we crash on one side or the other, they're going to come out and say, the reason that we failed is not because of the amount of intervention. It's because we didn't have enough control. We printed money and we couldn't stop people from buying, buying assets and causing bubbles. We gave people money and couldn't stop them from hoarding toilet paper and food and gas. We did all these things, but we couldn't control the end result. And so the problems happened. So what they're going to say is the way that we get out of this is with us having more control over the money through a digital currency, a central bank digital currency which is overhauling the monetary system. It's no longer a debt-based monetary system. It's a ledger-based monetary system. It's just private ledger instead of public ledger. And so you don't have to worry about a massive default in debt causing a wave of bankruptcies because uh, the, the foundation of the economy is now a ledger. It's not a big pile of debt.
2: We'll just and stop so, them from buying toilet paper. Yep.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So if you give people a bunch of money to help them out with something, you can assign Limits to it. So you go to swipe your debit card at the gas station and it says, no, you've already spent $400 this month on gas. Your your transaction will not go through. Um, they say, hey, there's a uh, a bubble forming in this stock. No more purchases can be made. Um, they'll say, hey, this is, this is uh, you know, there's not enough money going into this sector of the economy. So we're going to assign a one month, you know, think of it like a gift card, uh, amount of dollars to everybody's account that can only be spent on these things. And if you don't spend it in a month, they expire. And so we're heading that direction. And when that happens, you will not be able to buy Bitcoin with a CBDC. You will not be able to buy gold with a CBDC. You eliminate all at once, any legislation from controlling the flow of resources, any lawmaking, any... Uh, Uh, regulations, any bureaucracy, um, you eliminate all that and you have pure unadulterated control over the flow of money and resources in the entire economy. And so if you don't get your money outside of the system right now, by that time that comes, you won't be able to. So that's the second piece of advice I give people is buy Bitcoin, buy gold, buy silver, buy real stuff that in the case of a true emergency could be used for, you know, barter purposes if you want, or at least to escape um, have some wealth outside of the system.
1: Love it. Um, yeah, we agree as well. At least I do. So, on the inflationary front, this is kind of the, the, these are the two routes, and they often work in tandem. That something significantly inflates or hyperinflates. Option one, or the first component, is massive increase in broad money supply. Okay, which we've discussed, or based or broad, or combination of the two. The other is just broad distrust in that form of value transfer, right? So when we think about like Weimar, you have both. You have a a lot of new money entering the system, but you also have, as a result of that, this cycle, right? This vortex where people distrust the money and escape into gold and pounds and whatever else. We're a long way from it, way less than a trillion dollar market cap. But do you ever see Bitcoin being the vacuum for a lot of this... Money in, in an inflationary event? Like, do you think it will ever kind of uh, subsume a lot of capital in these inflationary environments? Yes or no? And then, like, what role do you see Bitcoin playing in the future on the, on the binary outcome where it
0: is incredibly valuable? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Bitcoin would have never, ever been created if governments had been responsible with money there would have been no need for it because if you could trust the government to not create new money, not bail out corruption, not bail out malinvestment and and cause misallocation of resources and uh, take through inflation and taxes and hand out to people who are not stewarding those resources well, if you could trust the government with the control of money, there'd be no need to invent an alternative. And so to the extent that that accelerates and continues and grows. The abuse of money, the attraction to something that cannot be abused will grow. Now, there is a competitor brewing right now, which is a commodity-backed fiat money system coming out of the East. And it's anybody's guess whether that will ever come to fruition. But if it does, there's a lot less control over a currency like that. And a lot of the world might be willing to trust that. And so there is a competitor, um, and there will probably be many more competitors. But the more governments abuse their money and show that they can't be trusted with controlling the money, the more an alternative that cannot be controlled becomes more and more attractive.
2: Yep, we completely agree and resonate with that. And I mean, anyone who thinks about this logically—I mean, I, don't, I know a lot of people are not so deep in the in the uh, down the rabbit hole of all this monetary stuff and how the history of it all, but. It's hard to tell people like this government-controlled commodity-backed currency is going to be good. We're not going to debase this thing. Like who in their right mind after watching and learning history over the last few hundred years would believe that? You'd have to be a complete fool. Yeah. Joe, what
0: concerns you the most about Bitcoin? I think the biggest, well, so this is uh, probably particularly to America. I think the biggest risk, like there's a difference between uh, enforcing a law and uh, passing a law. So the government can very easily enforce laws banning cryptocurrencies, NFTs, stable coins. They've got large surface areas of attack that can just say, hey, uh, to the creators, the founders, whoever's running it, uh, running the largest nodes, hey, shut it down or you're going to jail and it'll be shut down. You can't do that with Bitcoin. So the only risk to Bitcoin is that people just don't want to use it. Now, if you can make, Using Bitcoin a painful enough alternative for American citizens, or at least for half of American citizens, where uh, because of one political leaning or another, they think, you know what, I'm going to follow our leaders. Our our politicians say I can't use it. I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm just going to go with the crowd and I'm not going to use it. I think that's a. I think that is a real risk, especially over the last couple mm. of years. Um, there's a big tendency to. Uh, with some people to follow the crowd. And if they can make it unattractive enough, there might be a significant amount of people who just follow along and stop using it. So I think that is a big risk. Um, I'm not sure about culturally around the world in every country, um, how that fits. I know in China, it's more like that. I know in other places, it's you know completely the opposite. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see. But at the end of the day, if people don't wanna use it, it, it won't get used. Yeah, that's an interesting angle.
1: And it actually brings me back to the Zoltan piece because he mentions in there that other countries like Russia and China have more, uh, the, the lever of general mobilization is longer. Like the, those citizens are more apt to buy in and mobilize for a nationalistic cause than say America, which tends to be freedom loving and more independent. What if there is a scenario where the President of the United States gets up in front, front and says, maintaining our currency is of the utmost importance. The biggest threat to this is this Bitcoin thing. You're going to have a ton of people going along with that narrative. Just a, it's a, it's yeah. a bearish uh, angle that's interesting to explore and at least you know momentarily could have insane impact. That's the other thing. is you think about CBDC off-ramps being cut off, something like I just described, these might be 10, 15-year blows that could seriously impact valuation during half or all of our lifetime does that mean the protocol is going to cease to exist and not be here in the future probably not i think this thing is a a real and true honey badger but the time frame on which this unfolds and the risks that present themselves in the short and medium term they are uh
0: they're still prevalent yeah 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 and to the the flip side of that is if it becomes truly political um the other half will do the opposite. <laughs> and so you, you, you'd have the other half buying as much Bitcoin as they can purely out of spite for the other side of the aisle. You're right. Yeah, if Democrats hate Bitcoin,
1: guess who's going to love it? Republicans. Right. And it would be the same the other way around. Exactly. Yep,
0: absolutely.
2: <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for your time. Uh, could you give our audience a handoff to you and your
0: work before you go? Sure thing. Uh, Twitter and YouTube. I'm at Heresy Financial at uh, both places. Uh, YouTube, I put out a video every single day, and then Twitter, I tweet, you know, probably a couple times a day uh, whenever I feel like it.
1: Not sure how you put out as much content as you do, but please keep doing so because we are beneficiaries. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely. It. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast.
0: This is a story about the greatest and best money in the world.
2: Bitcoin.
0: A long time ago, when we were brother Here, we was hitchhiking
1: down a long, lonesome road when all of a sudden there shined a shiny demon
0: in the middle. Of And he said, Find the best money in the world Or I'll eat your souls Me and Seb We looked at each other We're set! Okay So we watched all the vids And we read all the books And we just so happened to find The best money in the world it was the best money in the world. Look into my wallet and let's see in the sea The my balls fly. Yeah, it's not really money, it's fiat currency. Once every couple hundred years or so, then try this scam until the people go. Fuck each other.
1: Needless to say, the beast was done there.
2: What a crack, what a whippet tailor!
0: Nay! Hey. We are big blips! Let's go!